Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at your word and, and see what you'd have us to see from this book. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Tonight we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy. So we're starting, starting it. It's the fifth book of Moses. It's also called Deuteronomy or the fifth book of Moses or the fifth book of the law. Deuteronomy means second law. Second, second giving of the law. And it was written by Moses. And this really is a book that is one pretty long sermon. Moses gives a retelling of the law. It's going to start out just outside of Jericho, across from the River Jordan. And when he gets done, he goes up on the mountain and dies. So this is literally his last address to the people of Are Israel. They? They're right at the River Jordan, and Jericho is across. So we're going to see that when we get started. So this is where they're at. And he gives the, the history of where, where they, all the places they've been. He gives the, retells the law. And you've got to think about this. He's spent 40 years in the wilderness. Former generation has all passed away except for their kids and Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones with any age that are left. So they are being retold the law. And the kind of interesting you're going to thing you're going to find out is they did not hold Passover the entire time that they left Egypt to the time they went into the Promised Land. They did not have the celebration of Passover or any of the other celebrations that God told them to do. When you get into Joshua, you're going to find out that the first thing they did was number one, they circumcised everybody. So they hadn't even practiced circumcision while they were wandering around in the desert. They had not practiced circumcision. They had not gone out and celebrated the Passover. They were, even with Moses as their leader, not following what God told them to do. But I th I'm part of it was because they were wandering around, I'm sure, in, in a new place every, every couple of weeks, so they didn't, didn't practice a lot of this stuff. They probably did some of the new moons and, and, and the, 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 daily, you know, the daily sacrifice stuff, but they weren't practicing all the big feast days. And you've got to remember the Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had a large enough flocks that they said, we want this land on this side of the Jordan because it's got lots of food for the cattle. They had already determined, you know, livestock was not a problem. They had animals. Okay, remember, even in Egypt, they were, they were herdsmen when they came to Egypt. And Joseph told them, don't tell Pharaoh that you are herdsmen and shepherds because shepherds had always been a despised occupation in Egypt. And part of it was that they considered shepherds thieves. Because you, you know, when they would birth lambs and everything, they would say that these lambs had been killed. And a lot of people thought the shepherds were just fleecing the flock and taking, taking a bunch of the lambs and... So they had a very low reputation of shepherds. Even though they were watching these animals, they were still not respectable. So we have this book of Deuteronomy. It's going to be the second telling of the law. It's going to be a review of their history. Moses is getting ready to die. He knows he's going to die. He's been told he's not going to enter into the promised land. And so he's telling everybody everything that he's told their parents over 40 years 
and he's retelling them as they get ready to enter into the promised land. And we're going to see the entering into the promised land brought all kinds of changes. As soon as they entered into the promised land under Joshua, manna stopped. And they did not have manna anymore. They, used, they were fed off of the land. And they started the Passover celebrations and a number of different things that they were, were to do. And if you remember also, the very first thing Joshua told them to do is they crossed the, crossed the River Jordan and God had split the, the River Jordan. And remember, that, that was a miracle that God did for Joshua. He's pretty bold. The priest had to step into the river running at flood stage. And, God, and Joshua told him, as soon as you step in it, the water is going to stop. And it stopped. And they crossed over on dry land. Just as God had done at the very beginning with the crossing of the Red Sea, now he did it with the Jordan River. And then there were two other times that the River Jordan was split. Do you remember who split the River Jordan in, in the other two times? Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah when he was going to go die and Elijah when he came back. And the River Jordan was split and they walked over on, on, on dry land. But anyway, Joshua's first commandment was take each tribe take a stone out of the center of the river and make a pile of them over on the edge of the water on the on the beach so that when your children saw the stones and asked why are those stones there you would be able to tell them that God stopped the water and we walked over on dry land God is going to tell them over and over put a memorial up so that people your children can ask questions Passover was that whole design of Passover was we do this so that when your children ask why do we do this they would tell them the whole story of coming out of Egypt to be delivered from slavery and brought into the promised land. God wants us sharing with our kids why do we do the things we do for God. It's very important to the Jews which is how they kept their identity virtually intact for centuries without a home because they would do these Passover dinners, the seders, and they said, this is what everything represents, and, and they would go over the history and the story. Christians do not do a good job of that traditionally, bringing their children up and saying, this is what we do, this is why we read the scriptures, this is why we do these things. The children of Israel really weren't doing a good time, even under Moses, on this last day, his last week, or whatever this time frame took over, He's given them the entire history of the people, saying, remember, remember what God has done as you enter into the promised land that he's given, giving you. And so Moses is going to give this whole long story. We're going to, it's going to be a, just a review. This whole book is just a review of everything we've read in the last three books. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are all reviewed in Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the way I've always remembered it, 10 is doubled in Exodus and cut in half in Deuteronomy. So and we're going to see his listing out all the places they've been, all of what, all the miracles that God has performed with them. And they're in just brief little, here's what happened. And he just goes quick, quick into each one of them. So Deuteronomy chapter 1. As we look into this speech of Moses, 
be the words which Moses spoke unto all the children on this side of Jordan in the wilderness in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahah. There are eleven days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the fortieth year in the eleventh month of the first day of the month that Moses spoke unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. So we see here they get a very precise location. I mean, this is, there's no guesswork on this, per, this, this uh, location. He's on this side of the Jordan, meaning the wrong side, the, uh, the, the wilderness side. In the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizra. And then in case you really don't understand, he says there's only, there are only 11 days journey from Horeb. And then he talks about Kadesh Barnea, which is down toward Egypt. So he's really pointing out that they are on the, the southeastern side of Jordan, down by the Dead Sea, getting ready to cross over into the Promised Land. Maybe just a little bit up from there, but they're right, they're on the southeastern side of the Jordan River. And it says that it came to pass in the 40th year, 11th month of the first day of the month that Moses spoke unto the children of Israel. So he's very specific. It's been 40 years since they left Egypt, 11 months and one day. I think this is a significant because when they get ready to go in, they're going to go in on Passover and celebrate Passover. So we're looking at, from the point that he starts speaking, there is a maximum of, because of the time frames that are going to be involved. Because when they get out of the 12th month, he's going to then go and celebrate Passover. So we have a very specific point of time. And it kind of tells us about how long they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were outside of Sinai for, four, for they were at Sinai for over a year wandered for 40 years. So we're about 41 years out from, from, from the Exodus at this point in time. And some people have really battled and talked about how long, were they, how long did the 10 plagues last. He's 120 years when he dies. His life breaks down to 40 years being raised to be king, 40 years as a shepherd, 40 years in the wilderness, give or take a year. So that means that the time of the plagues took practically no time. And he really, it had to have been a very quick succession of plagues. Otherwise, what would happen? They would do the same thing that we say today. We had a really bad string of bad luck. But when it comes one right after the other, within very quick succession, it would have been less than a year, I believe, for all of this to happen to destroy Egypt. That way they knew it was God. There was no, you know, well, we're just having, you know, two years of bad luck. You know, it was, we're just having a really bad year. And that's because God was going after them. And so we see time framing. And it's wonderful to see the time markers within the Bible. Because it is so easy, and I've shared this before, it is so easy for us to think Boy, those guys really led exciting lives. Look at this. It was just one big activity after the other. You know, we do that with Abraham's life. Abraham's life is covered over about four or five chapters, and those four or five chapters cover 40, 30 to 40 years of his life. 
you know, and we just read it and like, oh wow, this, this exciting thing, this exciting thing, this exciting thing. We need to watch for time markers when we're reading these things so that we get the passage of time. The book of Acts covers a period of time of about 30 years, 30 to 40 years. But you read it and it's like, Paul goes into town, Paul leaves town. Paul goes into town, Paul, Paul leaves town. And you have to go other places and realize that he was spending three, four, five years in each of these towns starting churches. So we look for these things that say how much time has passed. And sometimes it shows us how short the time is or how long the time is. The book of Judges has 13 judges. Most of those judges ruled 30 to 40 years. And then the people would fall, which would take 20, 30, 40, 50 years. The book covers six, 700 years, but you just read it and it's like, wow, look how exciting it was to live in the time of the, ju of the judges. You know, these bad things happen and then the judge rose up and look at all the excitement they had. And, and then you just read at the tail end of each judge and so-and-so ruled for 40 years. So you had 40 years of peace and then in the process of time, the people failed and, and God judged them. So we want to be looking for these things. It is very easy for us to read it in, because the Bible doesn't usually tell us six months later and such and such happened, six months later this happened, five years later this happened. You have to dig that information out of it. Most books will kind of say, well, and two weeks later or six months later. But even if you've ever read somebody's autobiography, they usually don't tell you that 10 years have passed until you start reading and going, hold it, they've moved, or this happened, or they've got a five-year-old kid, and you start realizing, oh, time has passed. They're just going story by story, story by story, and just you kind of get lost in there until you start looking for time markers. And so this is why we're bringing out, this is a book that is a very short book time-wise, a lot of chapters. And if you can imagine, this was only done in a couple of weeks maximum, and Moses would have them stand in front of him. And remember, in the Jewish way of teaching, the teacher sits, the students stand. And if, we, if you remember when we taught Ezra and Nehemiah, the people stood in the street and they sat on the pulpit platform that they said, and they taught. The respect you showed your teacher was by you standing and them sitting. And rabbis often asked questions. They didn't just teach, they asked questions and interacted with people. And then once they found out where people were, then they went off, launched off into their lesson. Oftentimes, these lessons were not short. Especially in Ezra and Nehemiah, they talk about the people standing at sunrise and leaving at sunset. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is kind of an amazing thought when you think about how people will complain if you go to an hour and a half on a sermon the people stood from the sunrise to sunset, 12 hours listening to, to the teachers. Pagan rituals and applied them to Christian way of teaching. So we moved from the Jewish way of teaching into a pagan way of When Constantine declared that the Christian church was the approved church of Rome, basically all the pagan ideas and ways of doing worship flooded into the Christian church, mixed into this kind of a mixed match of, uh, of religion. But that group basically kept Christianity as pure as they possibly could, and still as the Protestants 
as the Protestants broke away from Catholicism, they took a lot of the religious practices with them. And a lot of this came from the anti-Semitic beliefs and, and actions of that day. Constantine was very anti-Semitic. He declared that you couldn't worship on Saturday. And because he started taking out the Jewish roots from Christianity, they looked for something to tie it to. And, and the guys coming out of their pagan, pagan worship brought their pagan worship into where the whole saints bowing down to saints came from. They go, okay, well, I'm taking Jupiter out and I'm putting Paul in. I'm taking Mercury out and I'm putting you know, some, whoever the patron saint of travel is, you know, and all they did was just switch them into, you know, switch their idols that they were worshiping. That's what happened. Now, I'm, all of this came from trying to mix Christianity with what was going on out there. And this is why we celebrate Christmas on the winter solstice, because they already had a holiday, religious holiday. And from a practical governmental standpoint, it was... Let's just make Jesus' birth on the same day that there's already, already something going on so that we don't have another holiday to celebrate. Same thing when it came to the resurrection celebration. Instead of using Passover, linking it to the Jews, it was linked to the spring festival of Estar, the fertility goddess. In those days, though, they were very much linked with all the practices being mixed and matched. In today's world, we don't understand where all these practices come from. We, you know, because it's kind of interesting when I'll talk to somebody about, they'll go, well, where are the rabbits and the eggs and all that come from? Well, that's the worship of the star. That's the fertility goddess. And so we brought all of that into the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, separating it from the Jewish Passover where it should be, mixing it because of the anti-Semitism at the time of the mixing and saying we've got, we've got to separate it. And we did the same thing with East, with Christmas and with all the decorated tree and the Yule log and all of the stuff that comes from very pagan roots. The winter solstice, they literally worshipped the decorated tree in the old days. And it goes all the way back, you find it in Jeremiah where he talks about the trees being decorated with gold and silver and okay so it, it's been around forever when they merged these different groups together they just kind of tied all of these things into one big celebration all of this stuff comes from and there's a lot of books nowadays if you're really interested there's a book called the paganization of the christian church and it talks all about how all this stuff was mixed in but uh my, my attitude on it, if God puts it on your heart not to practice those pagan things, don't practice them. But most people are not worshiping the tree that they put in their house. They're not worshiping the Yule log that they're bringing into their house. They're not, they're not worshiping the bunnies and the rabbits and, and the fertility goddess and the eggs. You know, it, I have a little more trouble with that side of it because that is very, very much fertility god worship, yeah, minus right. the orgies. <laughs> But all of that stuff has been in the Bible. Nothing, again, nothing new under the sun. Uh, the fertility goddess rites have been around. We, we've already been reading about them. Astoroth was a fertility goddess. Baal is a fertility god. So they've been part of all of that and eggs and, 
And all of that stuff has been part of that worship forever. When God told the Jews not to, not to boil the, the kid in its mother's milk, it is not the way the Jews take it where you just can't have a cheeseburger. It was a fertility uh, celebration that if you boiled the, the young goat in its mother's milk, it was a way to get pregnant because you, were making, because you were making an offering to the fertility goddess. All of this stuff has been around forever with these worships and Thousands of and years stuff. before the Reformation. A thousand of years before, before, the before the Reformation. Thousands of years before, wow. before the Roman Catholic Church. They've been out there. And it's been a problem all through Scripture where we see this whole, and did much in Jesus and God's name that was not biblical. Much of, much of the attacks to the, to the promised land, trying to quote unquote deliver the promised land, was done in the name of Christ, and they were just as cruel as the Muslim invaders that they were trying to kick out. They would march into these cities and say, convert or die, just as the Muslims had said, convert or die. So these cities were Christian one year and Muslim the next year, Christian the ne next year, and they weren't really either one. They became these crazy, weird mix of religion, and most of the southeastern part of Europe has that same very weird mix because the Muslim Ottoman Empire would come come up through these cities convert or die they'd say they're Muslim Muslim conversion and the Roman Roman armies the Christian armies will come in and they'd march back through convert or die and so these people ended up mixing a having a very strange mix of quote-unquote Catholicism and Muslim beliefs with a very strange set of religion. We see it even to this day, that confused religion uh, that they have out there because of all of this very improper evangelism. Both sides running through their city, convert or die, and you, you know, if you really were whatever, you know, you really were a good Christian, then you died. And then later on, the, you know, the Christians came through, and if you were a really good Muslim, you died. And the rest just kind of whoever, whoever was in charge, you said, okay, I, I believe in that God. But in the same process, you kind of made your own religion out of the deal. You followed whatever because nobody cared what you actually did once they left your village. You were just a Christian village or a Muslim village when you, whichever army had flowed through. And so all of that area from southeastern Europe, all the Yugoslavia and all those places through there, Depending on how old your map is, you know, you would see the Ottoman Empire had pushed all the way up there, and then a couple of years later, the Christians would push them back, back closer to Turkey, and then a few years later, the Ottoman Empire would come back through, and, and every time a new army pushed through, there was convert or die. And the, promise, the Holy Land was the same way. Crusaders would run marching through your city, and when they, they would say convert or die, and you were a Christian city when they left. And then sooner or later, the Ottoman Empire or the Muslims, depending on how far back, would come back through there, convert or die, and people would become Muslim again. They really weren't either one. It was just whoever had control of that area, they agreed. Years at a time, it was decades at a time. Whole, whole families would be raised up as Muslim or Christian, and then 
but not really Muslim or Christian. They were these very strange mix of things because you knew that within another 10, 20 years, the armies were going to come back through and tell you to switch. So you never got rid of your, your saints out of your, out, you know, totally got rid of your saints. You just put them away into closets. And then when the Christian army came through, you brought everything back out and now you were, now you were Catholic. All that's happened in this world, nothing's new. And true Christianity and even true Muslim religion does not really exist out there because of the way they have tried to implement their, in, implement their growth. Even with ISIS today, they're doing what the Muslim armies and the Ottoman Empire has always done. Go through, convert, or die. And so people convert, and they're quote-unquote Muslims, but they're not Muslims because they're not really following what the Quran says, all they're doing is they, they would quote the pillars of, of Muhammad and, and become, become Muslims, all right? There are places in this world that are very Muslim, okay? And we need to worry about those places. Now they will tell us that you've taken and misinterpreted it and all this stuff. The same thing Jews will say that the Old Testament cannot be interpreted. It is very hard to interpret the Aramaic languages because of their picturesque nature. And we've, we've shared this with you. There's times when we look in, it depends. A word can mean two or three things mm -hmm. at the same time and in the mind of the Jew or the, or, the, or the Muslim, that word means all three things at the same time. Okay, it is a way that they think. We think of thing, the word meaning one thing and one thing only. It's got to mean one thing, but, but if you really start getting into the Hebrew and the Aramaic, a lot of times the word, the, all three or four words can literally fit that sentence, and in their mind, they're all correct. This is true of almost everything in the Middle East, all the way through the Asian, Asian part. Their words oftentimes have more than one meaning, and in their mind, all the meanings are valid at the same time. It is a language that's hard to understand. It is a language that's full of pictures. And I've shared with you, there's multiple words for here in the Hebrew. The most beautiful one, and it's only translated here in the, in the, in the scriptures, but it has the picture of a dog hearing its master's voice. And if anybody's ever had a dog, and you've seen that dog when the dog hears the, even just the car, yep. you know, the car drives up and all of a sudden the ears perk up, the head cocks to a side, and you see the dog, the tail starts to, to move a little bit, and they listen a little closer, and they decide, yes, it is master, and all of a sudden, that tail is moving a mile a minute. They're up at the front door ready to greet. When you read the word here in the Old Testament, and that's the word they're using, are you thinking about that kind of excited hearing? No. But also, are you wanting an entire half a paragraph for one word? in the translation. Because to properly translate that one word, you'd have to go, here is the dog hearing his master's voice and getting excited about master coming home, the Lord's voice. <laughs> this is the problem of, in translating anything because there's so much depth. And we even have some of those type of things in some of our words when we really get deep into the definitions of our words. And sometimes our words mean so much more than what we actually 
understand them to be, which is why I spend a lot of time sometimes de defining words even in English. We talked about the word propitiation. Very big word. We don't use it very often anymore. It's an old word. But it means that the anger has been satisfied, and that is what Jesus is. He's our propitiation. The mercy seat that covers the ark is called the seat of propitiation, where God's anger was justified and fulfilled. This is sometimes very hard when you're teaching somebody and you want to use the right word, but nobody knows what it means. And sometimes you have to sit there and spend five minutes explaining a word that if you just could use the one word, you could move on, but nobody would know what the one word meant. And this is, our language is becoming less and less precise with each year that comes along. My, my stepmother used to really get on us, you know, and people would say, well, how, how, how are your kids doing? And she would tell them, I don't have any goats. That was her answer. I don't have any goats. I have children, and my children are doing good, you know, she would tell them. But she didn't want her kids being, her children being called kids. You know, so why? Because she was living on the oldest, older definition of the word, and it was a very negative word in her sight. And we see this. The word... Tolerance has totally changed over the years in its meaning. When we were all growing up, tolerance was a very good virtue. We were tolerant of others. You had the right to believe whatever you wanted. You had the right to be wrong. And that's how we looked at it. You could believe whatever you wanted, and I will tolerate. You had the right to be wrong, and I'm not going to sit there and you know, to argue against it. Today, tolerance means that you give equal weight to their belief as to your belief. So to be tolerant, you have to say, I believe homosexuality is wrong, you believe it's right, so they're both right, you know, who can, who can say which one's right, and that's tolerance. So Christians have moved from some of the most tolerant people in this world to the most intolerant people in this world. And they've changed the word, and, and grandparents think when their kids are talking about tolerance that it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. And the greatest sin you can commit in today's world, especially the academic world, is to be intolerant. Not give somebody's view equal weight to your view. This is why we cannot discuss things in this world anymore and hold a position. Because you are being intolerant, and being intolerant is terrible. When I went back to school in the 90s, I had lots of people tell me that I was intolerant, and I go, thank you, I know I am. It used to drive them nuts because they had just accused me of one of the most awful sins you could do, and I accepted the accusation, and, and they would look at me like I was nuts because as far as they were concerned, I was nuts. I, was, I had just violated the worst, they had just called me the worst thing they could call me, sort of cursing me out and everything, and I didn't get bothered by it. It was bad enough in the past to be tolerant, you know, but, but at least I could say, your belief is against God and it's wrong, but you have the right to believe it. Well, you can't say that anymore and, and be considered tolerant. That is the most intolerant thing you can possibly say. And this is why we as Christians are having more and more trouble with the world the way it is. Because if we're going to hold God's standard, people are going to look at us and we're intolerant. And that's really the worst thing you can be which is why they've created all these re-education camps because we need to desperately be re-educated 
to be tolerant. We have all of this going on in our lives and the, and the world is starting to say, we want to do what's right in our eyes, not what's right in God's eyes, because in their mind, there is no God. This is something that we see. Our leaders, I mean, it's amazing to me how popular Bernie Sanders is with his straight up uh, socialist propaganda. And he's very popular and very close to being able to take the Democratic side because usually they've had to be quiet about it. But college-educated people have been trained that socialism is right, capitalism is wrong, and that capitalism is abusive to people. They've been taught that socialism is the best answer to everything. But here, here we have Moses reestablishing everything with the Jews. And he's going to, at the end of the book, he's going to be telling them that they're following Joshua into the promised land. And so we're seeing here where they're at. Uh, verse 5, On this side of Jordan in the land of Moab began Moses to declare the law, saying, The Lord our God spoke unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough at the, in this mount. And Mount Horeb is another name for Sinai, if you remember. Turn ye now and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and unto all the places nigh thereunto and in the plain and in the hills and in the vale and in the south and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites and, the, and unto Lebanon unto the great river, the, the river Euphrates. Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about the borders of Israel included all the way up to the Euphrates. Alright, all of that and the only time Israel has ever owned all of its land was under Solomon. Ever since then, they have never had the entire land that they were told they were going to have. And Solomon had most of it, not as directly part of Israel, but as vassal states. They paid taxes to him. He had rule over them. Very much the same as when Abraham wandered all through the Promised Land, and you had the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all these people. They were all vassals to Egypt. He was technically living in Egypt the whole time that he wandered the Promised Land. And if you don't understand that, grab an old history book and, and look at the Egyptian Empire and see how far the first great empire in the Western world was Egypt and it covered all the Middle East and all of North Africa and parts of Southern Europe at, at its height. Yeah, it was one of the great, it was the first great empire and dwindled away. So when, Mo, when Abraham was wandering through, he technically, for all practical purposes, lived in Egypt. And this tells us that the people of Israel dwelt in Egypt. From the time Isaac was born, they dwelt in Egypt. Even though it took Joseph to bring them into Egypt proper, and it gets you into the whole, pol the whole political uh, politics of this. You have the country and then you have all the vassals which are part of your empire, but not technically your empire. Uh, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persian empires had these same type of mentality. They were all part of the empire, but the king didn't actually go to all those places. He just gave them taxes, and as long as they paid their taxes, you could do pretty much what you wanted as long as you recognized the king was the king and paid your taxes. You could you know, live with whoever he put in charge of you.
and be ruled by them and you would be under the name of that country. Rome did the same thing. Uh, Rome did the same thing. They conquered all these places and they just taxed them. And part of their tax was that they took military men from, from each, each little vassal. So it gets you into this history of things that are going on. And we see here he's saying, we're, we're all the way out and look at the land, how big it's going to be. And Israel's never had their land that they want. And it's kind of amazing in today's world, the Arabs are complaining about the little piece of land that the Jews have. And the funny thing about that is the last signed document of land included all the way to the Mediterranean. Okay, no other land assignment has ever been signed by, any, by, the, by the world's governments. And they don't want to let them have the land that they're supposed to and they're complaining. And when the Jews returned to their home, they bought the land because they, from, the, from most of the Arabs because at that time it was considered swamp land. It was worthless. It was full of mosquitoes and, and standing water and was worthless land. And the Arabs were happy to sell the Jews their land at high prices that the Jews paid, rubbing their hands saying, boy, these people are stupid, you know, buying all this swamp land. And look what God has done to their land and turned it into the garden area for the, that side of the world. Everywhere his heel touched was his land. And he started just outside the Euphrates. So everywhere he touched belongs to Israel by God's promise. Which means that whole strip that we showed on the map that we gave, you guys, gave out about four weeks ago, that goes all the way up to the Euphrates, he walked down that strip. That land belongs to him as far as God's promise. All of, that, all of the area between the Jordan and the Mediterranean that he wandered back and forth on is his, according to God. When he went down to Kadesh Barnea, which was basically the outside edge of Egypt proper at that time, belonged to him. He actually went into Egypt, remember, the first time he said that Sarah, Sarah was his sister and got it taken into Pharaoh's house. Uh, Haram and God stepped in and told him to, and he says, get out of my land. And so all, of, all that portion of Egypt belongs to Egypt, Israel, according to God. All of that southern section that he wandered around into in Abimelech's land belongs to them. You know, when God says the part that belongs to Israel, he's talking about pretty much the entire Middle East belongs to Abraham and by God's decision, Isaac. Belongs to Israel according to God's decree. Now, God gave it to Isaac as the, the child of promise and the big problem comes into the way the laws work and still in their day and today, the majority of the inheritance belongs to the eldest brother, which would have been Ishmael. And God rejected Ishmael because of being the, the son of the flesh and all of that goes into. So this is part of that whole battle that goes on in there. It's a family battle and they lay their claim on that it should have belonged to Ishmael. That is there because he was the oldest son, so the promise should have gone to Ishmael, and that land doesn't belong to. And from in their from their mindset, 
The land does not belong to Israel through Ish, uh, from Isaac to, to Israel. It belongs to Ishmael with his 12 sons. We had these problems with the whole Middle Eastern situation, and it all boils down to Abraham trying to help God. How many times do we get in trouble trying to help God? God, just let me, you're just not moving fast enough. Let me help you fix this, fix this issue. And right. most of the time we make a mess out of it. He wasn't, but you all got to understand from his point of view, you know, he's, he's in his 80s, Sarah's in his, in his 80s. It sounds like a great deal. I mean, I'm getting kind of old. I'm not going to have a kid if I don't do something of my own. You know, obviously, Sarah, something's wrong with you. You're not able to get this kid that God says you're going to give me. And by sight... It was a true statement. Well, she had already, and this was what she said when the angel said, Sarah's going to have a child. Her answer was, I'm past the time of women. Mm -hmm. In other words, she says, I'm beyond menopause. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not having a, I'm not, you know, what, what's wrong with this guy? He doesn't understand biology. <laughs> I am no longer in a place where I can have a child. And that is why she laughed, because in, by sight, there was no way she was having a child. She had not had a period for years. And yet the angel said, you're going to have a child. She gets her child way past the time of having a child. And then Abraham really is miraculous because God gave him back fertility. And he has another eight children. Mm -hmm. after, after Sarah dies, he's in his hundreds having children. Those ones, those ones were directly said, you are not getting any inheritance. This is all you're getting. You know, you are not being part of Isaac's, Isaac's inheritance. All of this goes in, and Moses is here saying, here's the land we're going to have. Here's the land we're going to have. And you've got to think that the, the people are pretty happy about this. They had beat the, the Moabites. They had beat the Amorites. They had beat everybody else who stood against them all through the wilderness. And they're going, okay, we're going to have a large, large chunk of land because this is what was defined to them. The sad thing is, as we look into the future, they didn't take all the land they were supposed to have. They never, in, in Joshua's day, they never conquered all the land that they were supposed to conquer. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who were told, you can't, you can't just stay here, you've got to send your armies in. After many years of fighting for them and not being able to go to their land, finally said, Basically, the heck with this. They're not, they're not getting their land fast enough. We're going back to our, our homes. Mm -hmm. And that is something they get cursed for later on because they left before all the land was taken. I love Caleb's statement. He says, give me that mountain over there. It's got the strongest army. I want that army. I want that hill. <laughs> you know, Caleb's like 90 years old saying, give me, give me that hard battle. I want, I want to get to show me how great he is. These guys were really feisty guys <laughs> coming in and saying, I still believe God can give me the hardest battle. And they took those challenges. They took the hard, the hard places. And... In Deuteronomy, God is going to challenge the people to pay attention to him. During that 40 years of wandering, they've kind of gotten away from God. Just a few years before this, remember that they've started offering sacrifices because Balaam told Balak to send in the girls. Send in the girls and tempt the men so that they will sacrifice to the idols and God will judge his people. And tens of thousands of people died because of that. 
They were easily swayed. They were not dedicated to God. With all the miracles they see from God, manna, quail, water being miraculously delivered to them, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud leading them wherever they're going, living in the shade of the, of the cloud of God in the wilderness and the desert and not being appreciative of it. How often do we get to the place where we don't appreciate what God is doing because we get familiar with what he's doing? I've said this before. Oftentimes we live in the blessing of God and we start treating the blessing as normal mm. and forgetting that it is a blessing. Christians do this a lot. And we've talked about it. God blesses somebody, gives them the money to buy a nice house and all kinds of toys. And then the next thing you know, you don't see them in church anymore. Why? Well, you've got all the toys. You've got to go use them. You've got to go ride your, your quad. You've got to go use the, the boat. You've got to go use the RV, you, the, t the, the fifth wheel, all the stuff that God's given you these blessings for. And the next thing people are looking at you, well, where is so-and-so? Well, they're out there on the river. They're out on the... They're out on their, their RV, traveling the country, maybe an airplane, traveling, whatever it might be, because they have looked at the blessings of God and become familiar and said, complacent? this is the normal. Complacent. <laughs> it's like, God, you're blessing me, and this is normal. Be very careful when you start thinking of the blessings of God are the normal, because he might just show you that it's not normal and take everything away from you or watch you walk away from him as you live in the, with all the toys and the blessings he's given to you. And I've been walking with God long enough, I've seen it over and over again where people retire and start playing with their toys and forget God because they're living in the blessings and thinking the blessings are normal, getting complacent, getting forgetful that God is the, the author of all that blessing. Well, just yeah, thinking, just water, water in America is something Americans take for granted. Yes. Most places in this world, you cannot drink the water from the tap. Right. You have to boil it. You have to put it some form of fil filtering or, or treat it at your house level. Not We'll complain because our water has a little bit of chlorine smell to it or something. But we can drink our water safely here. So we want to keep in mind the blessings of God in this country yes. are amazing. We're losing our blessings soon, and we're going to have to be ready for all this. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for just looking at all these different things that you've given us. And we ask you just to go with us as we go forward and, and help us to look at the blessings you've given us and be ready for the trials coming our way in your son's name. Amen.